Well, good morning. Um, if you would turn in your scriptures, we're going to be in Exodus as we have been. We're going to be looking at 13, end of 13, 14, and, and parts of 15 today. But, but as we begin our, our time, I actually want us to, to flip to Genesis, if you would. Um, Genesis chapter 15. And point us to something that we have been pointed back to throughout this, this study in Exodus. But it's important for us to always keep this in our minds lest we turn Exodus into just this um, distinct set of events. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, it's in the context of, of God giving his covenant to Abraham. Multiple places in, in there where he gives him parts of that covenant. And here in, in verses thirteen through or thirteen and fourteen, we we see God giving a part of the covenant and a promise in the covenant that's we we've seen throughout Exodus, but is often overlooked when people think of the covenant. They think He's going to give them a, a nation, He's going to give them land, but they leave out that part in here where it, He speaks of what will happen in between those things. Verse thirteen of, of chapter fifteen of Genesis. Then Yahweh said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Um, God is in His covenant given to Abraham, in a sense, made a promise to him because he has spoken that it's going to happen. Therefore, it's going to happen. That this nation he's going to give them is going to be foreigners in a strange land and will be oppressed and be slaves there and will be mistreated there. But I will come and deliver them. And it's important for us to keep that in the, in the forefront of our mind as we look at this study of Exodus because like we saw in the psalm that we started our, our service with today. Every line's followed with what? For his steadfast love endures forever. His covenant, his hesed, his covenant love endures forever. And it's important for us to keep this covenant with Abraham, not just the promise they're going to be sojourners and he's going to deliver them, but the promise, I'm going to make you a nation and I'm going to give you a land and in you all the nations will be blessed. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Because if we, if we lose sight of that, then, then the story of Exodus is just a nice historical narrative that we can learn things about. But if we keep that in the forefront of our minds, the Exodus is a story of God being faithful to His covenant to redeem His people and to proclaim His glory to the nations. Um, which, spoiler alert, is the theme of the entire Scripture. Right? And so we see this in the book of Exodus. And even in chapter 1, we see as the people are crying out to God and their groans for deliverance come before Him. Who remembers what it says? And God remembered His covenant with Abraham. And God heard them. Right? And so God is acting out of His, his steadfast love that endures forever. He is acting out of the promises of His covenant with Abraham in redeeming these people and redeeming them in the way in which He is. Today we now get to the point of the, 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 the plagues, as, as we call them, the ten plagues are, are done. 
The firstborn have been spared. And Pharaoh's finally reached the point where he says, go. Get, leave. Because I don't want to know what's going to happen next. He doesn't say that, but I can only imagine. It's, it's just, I'm at, I'm at an end. Go. And so now the people have fled. We see the, the Passover. And in the end of 13 and 14, and in the first part of 15, is a story that is probably familiar to most of us. There's, there's sections of Exodus that are probably more familiar than others to us. But I, I hope and I pray that today, as we, as we recount this story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the Lord, the way He delivered them, that we be renewed in our strength in the Lord of His faithfulness to His covenant, His faithfulness to save His people. I was even thinking as we were singing up here. I, I'm, I'm especially encouraged every week with, with everything we do. But I'm encouraged to be in a, in a place where we don't just sing, we get to hear each other sing. I'm encouraged by hearing you sing the truth to me of what we're singing. But I also get the, the joy of being able to see you sing it. And, and even this week as we're singing of the grace of God, it's by grace alone to save. I can see in the faces of some a joy. I can see in the faces of some a, a, a longing to, to, to take hold of. Or maybe sometimes you're like me and it's, I believe, help my own belief. And, and every week I get to see and, and we get to, to encourage one another in the way we sing and in the way we fight to hold to these truths. So I pray that today as we look at these things, and be reminded of the goodness of who God is and His sovereign power to deliver His people, that no matter where you are in that spectrum, whether it be we're walking in the joy of His salvation or we're walking in, um, why are you downcast, oh my soul, or we're walking in the Father of Gospel, uh, Luke's account in the Gospel of I believe, help my own belief, that today we would be strengthened in the faithfulness and the goodness of who Yahweh is. So let's look together. We're going to read, starting in verse 17 of chapter 13. And we're going to read from there through the end of verse four, or chapter 14. Um, and we're going to make reference throughout the sermon um, to chapter 15. But we're going to read together um, 13, verse 17 through the end of verse 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, 
in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the People of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and camped by the sea. By Pahahirath in front of Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in, to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. All night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh, in a pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, 
Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Triune God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise for you and for your word, your power and your majesty, your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that as we um, meditate and dwell and, and spend time thinking upon these words from Exodus this morning, that you would you would strengthen your people to stand firm and know that in you there is a salvation that you have worked, that you have accomplished. May we be strengthened in these things as we look to Christ, the great deliverer of his people. And it's through him we pray these things by the Spirit. Amen. So as we look at this text, um, again, most of it probably being familiar to you. Um, some of you may be familiar with not just this, but a lot of this story through the old DreamWorks production, you know, Moses, King, Prince of Egypt. Um, just forget everything you learned from that movie um, as we dwell upon these things. But this is a story that's probably familiar to, to some of us, at least parts of it. But as we look at this today, I want us to, to concentrate really on three um, themes. It's, it's, it's always tricky when you look at any text, but when you look at larger sections of text, what are you going to emphasize and not emphasize, and what are you going to deal with and not deal with? But I want us to, to look today primarily at three, three themes that are not just in this text, but are throughout, or like a continual... Um, refrain throughout the book of Exodus of God's faithfulness to His covenant, God's sovereign leading of His people, and God's sovereign glory over the nations. So I want us to, to begin looking at, at God's faithfulness to His covenant. Uh, again, going, if you, we started with Genesis 15, God's covenant to Moses, or Abram promised that He w- would give him a nation, but they would be enslaved to another nation, that he would deliver them. Exodus 1, God remembers this covenant, and he's acting out of it. And we see even in verse 19 here, when if you're reading this, it may seem like an odd side note. The people are now being set free from Egypt. They're leaving. And in verse 19, there's a note, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Why are they noting that they're taking the bones of a patriarch from hundreds of years ago as they leave on this journey to to flee. Why is this what they're making note of? Because Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 
Again, if you go to Genesis 50, verse 25, we see reference this. Um, Joseph is dying, and it says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This is his dying um, oath to his, to his kinsmen. Why is Joseph making that on his deathbed? Why is he saying, take my bones with you when you go? Because what did Joseph knew? Joseph knew and Joseph remembered and Joseph was proclaiming his posterity after him. God is going to be faithful to his covenant promise. We're in this land that is not ours. The day is coming when God will take us away from here because he said he was going to. And when you do, don't leave me here. Joseph, clinging to the faithfulness of God in his covenant, dies having never seen it. And if we understand and grasp, wasn't even close to seeing it. Hundreds of years would pass before God ever did what Joseph was clinging to. And yet Joseph looks at the faithfulness of God and who he was and says, God is going to keep his promise. I didn't see it. But God said he would do it. And when he does, take my bones with you. Hebrews 11 references this. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Joseph was operating out of faith in Yahweh, knowing he will keep his promise. He will do what he said he will do. And though I may not see the fullness of it, I'm telling you and reminding you, He's going to do it. And it seems apparent that this would have been passed down from generation to generation, or else why else would Moses had, Moses had known to take his bones with him? If Joseph's children hadn't told his children, hadn't told his children, hadn't told his children, then no one would have thought, hey, let's get Joseph's bones and take them with us. It seems this was a constant reminder. If nothing else, the bones of Joseph and the story to take them with him would have been a reminder throughout the generations. God is going to deliver his people. So they have the bones of a patriarch serving as a constant reminder of the promise of God. We're to take those bones with us when we go because God is going to send us away from here. God is going to fulfill His promise. And even now as they're carrying them in the midst of this thing, it's not only a reminder throughout the generations. Now they're actually in the Exodus. They're actually seeing God fulfill His promise. This thing Joseph was clinging to, they're now actually seeing the fullness of it. And even in the midst of that, they're carrying the bones of Joseph as a reminder. This is God's faithfulness to His covenant. This is what Joseph was clinging to all those years ago. Now we see God being faithful to this promise. Again, Joseph never saw the culmination of this, but died in faith knowing that God would keep his promise. And, and we see, even in those pictures of, of carrying out of bones, this truth that God will keep his covenant. God will keep his promise. Though it may be longer than we want it to be, And we may die having never seen the fullness of it. But we have the promise of knowing that Yahweh will keep His Word. 
And I'll reference this again at the end, but it seems apropos to even say it now. We have something far greater than the bones of a patriarch to remind us that God will keep His covenant and has kept His covenant. We have the empty tombs of a crucified Savior. We don't have bones of a dead man. We have a living high priest who sits at the right hand of God interceding for us to proclaim to us and to display to us and to show to us God not only will, but has kept His covenant promise to save His people. And likewise, though we may not see the fullness of that, we may die before the Lord's return. But we can die knowing and believing He will return and He will claim His own. So we see God's faithfulness to His covenant. We see God's faithfulness to keep His promise. And now the people are set free. They've been told to go. And yet, in that, now we see, again, the Lord's sovereign leading of His people. And we see this in two ways that are um, show the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and how He does it. Look in verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. In other words, there was a direct way to get to where God wanted them to go, but He didn't take them that way. It would have been through the land of the Philistines, and God did not take them the most direct way. Why? Because God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and go back to Egypt. God knew that if they went into the land of the Philistines, they were a cantankerous people, that they would see war and likely encounter war. And God knew that the people of Israel were not ready for such an event. And God knew that if they encountered such an event, they would likely go back to Egypt. And we can look and say, why would the people go back to Egypt? Why would they want to go back to Egypt? But we're going to get there later, but we see clearly that is their response when hardship happens. It would be better off if we were still there. And God knows us about them. So God doesn't lead them through the way of the Philistines because God knew He was not prepared. They were not prepared for that. And it was interesting, as you, as you look at this, at least it was interesting for me. If you look at verse 17, it says God didn't lead them that way because they weren't ready for war. And if they saw war, they would change their mind. But if you look at verse 18, how does it describe Israel? They went out of the land of Egypt, what? Equipped for battle. Literally, the translation is they were, they were in ranks of five or 50. They were, they were in a war formation as they left Egypt. It appears they may have gone out as if they were ready for battle, but the Lord knew, knew indeed they were not ready for battle, and He did not send them to it. The Lord was sovereignly and graciously not letting them go their own way, not even letting them go the most direct way, but was leading them in the way that was best for them, in the way that would get Him the most glory. It's also interesting to see in this God being patient toward this people. Knowing that if they encountered such a hardship, their response would not be, Yahweh will save us. Their response would be, let's go back there. And yet, by God being gracious and patient with His people to lead them in the way that is best for them. 
again, likewise, there are times in our lives where we, we may see, even see where God is taking us, and it seems He is taking us every which way but the most direct way to get there. There's a place we want to be, a place we want to go, and maybe it's taking the long way to get there, or maybe, unlike here, maybe God just says we're not going there. We can look and we can get frustrated. We can look and say, why don't we just go from point A to point B instead of going the point A to point D, then E, and then maybe back to B sometime eventually? Here's why. Because God knows better than you do about where you need to be and what you need to be and what you need to encounter and not encounter. We see the goodness of God in leading His people. Matthew Henry commented on this in his commentary. says, God's way is the right way though it seems about. If we think He leads not His people the nearest way, yet we may be sure He leads them the best way. And so it will appear when we come to our journey's end. may not be the nearest way, but it will be the best way. And we see God in His goodness and His wisdom and in His patience and gentleness towards His people leading them the long way but the best way, knowing what they need and what they don't need. But we also see in this sovereign leading of His people the way in which He leads them. Look in verse 21. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them. So we see here, God not only led them the best way, God led them in a personal way. God was tangibly among them, though not in a physical body, for indeed they would not have been able to handle that. But God is in the, the cloud. It says, and Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. God in His presence leading them tangibly in a cloud by day and in fire by night so that they could see at night to travel and they could see the direction in which they needed to go in the day to travel and that the pillar did not depart from before the people. That God was not just leading His people in some nonchalant, hey, go generally this way. But God was leading them with His presence dwelling among them and not departing from them. Which is a comfort to us in that, one, the Lord leads us, and we'll, we'll look at this further in depth of how this applies to us toward the end. But the part that astounds me in that is that the pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day or by night. This people that grumbled and complained against Him. This people that were so fickle in their faith that at the drop of a hat they would have gladly gone back to the very people that they cried to be delivered from. And God is gracious not to leave them. He's gracious not to depart from them. And He's gracious to lead them in the way that is best. And again, we see in this that the Lord not only leads them not the most direct way, tactically speaking, He leads them in a very confusing way. Here's what I mean by that. 
you you look at verses one through um, three. And Yahweh tells Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp encamp facing it by the sea. He sends them back toward where they were going, to where they would then be blocked in by the sea if anyone advanced upon them. So tactically speaking, militarily, I'm not a military guy. I'll leave it to the army men and the marines in the room to, to, to advance me on that. Seems like not the best tactical move. But again, the Lord was leading them to what was best for them. Because what we're going to see is He was leading them in this place exactly because they would be to where Pharaoh would see them, Pharaoh would go after them, and they would be blocked in by the sea and have absolutely nothing they could do. So God is leading them in a way that, though it is long, and though it may seem like it's... um, not advantageous for them. It is best for them and it is what they need. For their good and for His glory. So as the Lord gives direction to Moses, tell the people to turn back and encamp and facing by the sea. And then we're going to see for the remainder of our time, God displaying His sovereign glory to the nations. Because look at what the Lord says in verse 4. After He tells him, or in verse 3, after He tells him to go in and camp in this way by the sea, and here's why I'm sending you that way. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. God is leading them away for the very reason so that Pharaoh will go after them again. And he will harden Pharaoh's heart. We've dealt with that throughout. We see Pharaoh hardening his heart. We see the Lord hardening his heart. We're going to let that say what it says. But he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And it's, it's interesting. As I think about this and was thinking about this, he didn't lead them by way of the Philistines because they weren't ready to see war. They weren't ready to fight war yet. But he's leading them by way of the sea so that they'll be attacked by an army. So that they can see he will claim victory over them. They weren't ready for war, but they needed to see this battle. They needed to know it wasn't there. So he's leading them. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And in verse 5, we see that's exactly what happened. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. We've seen this throughout the plagues. Pharaoh has a gorge belly bait of what's going on with, with the, the, the plague of the current moment. Moses, tell Yahweh to stop and I'll let the people go. Moses prays, Lord makes it stop. What's Pharaoh's response? He saw the respite, and he hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. And we would think by the final plague, when the firstborn, when death had not only gone to livestock, but death had gone to all of the houses of Egypt, including Pharaoh's, it would seem. 
And he's now let him go. You would think he would, you would think he would say, um, "Okay, we're done. Enough of these people and enough of their God." But when he sees him leave, um, says he changed his mind and says, "All right, boys, let's go." And everybody says, "Okay." Seems confusing to me. There's a part of this scripture where we want to say, Pharaoh, what are you, like, seriously? But yet what we need to understand is apart from the grace of God, that is the condition of all of us. We have all seen the power and the majesty and the grandeur of who God is. Paul says so in Romans 1. That in nature itself, His invisible attributes have been made known to us. And yet, what do we do? We look at Him continually, and we shake our fist, and we wage war against Him, and we say, you will not be my God. And apart from the grace of God, that is us. And we see Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, in the sovereignty of the will of God, load up his army. And he's going to throw everything he has at the people of Israel now. And he pursues them, and he goes after them, and he seeks to overtake them. And in verse 9, we see the response of the people. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. I think if we're honest, we can sympathize with the people of Israel here. They know the power of Pharaoh's army. They've seen it. They've been enslaved to it. And now they're out wandering around in the midst of the wilderness with likely not, a, not many weapons, if any weapons, to their name. And here's the entire weight of Pharaoh's army coming upon them. And they've got Pharaoh's army this way and the Red Sea this way. I'll offer, I'll offer Israel some sympathy here. Though a part of me wants to say, did you not just see everything he did? And yet their response is to fear greatly. Again, I, I, I get them. But then their response is this. It's not just they feared greatly. Then, then, then they turn to completely question the very character and nature of who God is. This God who's just delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This God who has shown distinction between them and Israel as the plagues come. And it hits Egypt and it doesn't hit them. This God who has responded to their cries of mercy. And now Israel or Egypt has now pursued them. And, and look at what they say. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Was there not enough land to bury us all in the land of Goshen so you had to bring us in the wilderness for Yahweh to kill us? Is that what's happening? Questioning the very nature and goodness and the faithfulness of God to keep His covenant. And not only that, then they go into, if it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians. We were better off there. And again, we should scratch our head because, yes, Yahweh is responding to His covenant. The Lord is doing what He promised He would do. But if you remember, if you go back to Exodus 1, what was He responding to in this immediate context? Their cries to Him to deliver them. 
And he comes in and delivers them, and their response is, we were better off where we were. God delivered them, but apparently not in the way they thought. But yet again, the, the graciousness and the patience of the Lord towards His people. Is this a really good thing? That the Lord is better than I am. Because in this context, my response probably would not have been, okay people, let me show you again my faithfulness and love to you. My response likely would have been, okay, fine. I'm expressing my sin to you. You can help me in my sanctification. My response likely would have been, I'm, okay, that's what you want to do. We'll, we'll do it that way. But the Lord in His gracious and patience towards His people, even though He had just shown them His, His power and mighty hand that was going to deliver them, even though they had just seen His power to, to bring death and judgment upon Egypt and spare them and save them, yet they come in here and they question His very nature and character by saying, you just brought us out here to kill us. You should have just left us alone where we were. And yet, God is gracious to save His people. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. in the midst of their fear, and in the midst of their doubting, and even in the midst of their accusations to the Lord. The Lord's response to His people is patience and grace and mercy and salvation. Again, He, he did not lead them by the way of war because they were not ready to fight even though they were in the formation for battle. But He leads them here to a battle that they cannot avoid and He says, you don't, you don't fight this one. You just stand and be silent. Yahweh will fight for us. And in this deliverance, the Lord not only led them to a place where um, He would save them, but led them to a place they were completely dependent upon Him to save them. There's nothing else Israel can do here. There's no running because the sea's here. And there's no fighting because this is the full weight of Pharaoh's army and they don't have a chance. They see the salvation of Yahweh. And here's the part of the story where we're maybe more familiar with it. Moses is told to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand over the sea and to divide it. The people of Israel will go through, but then what does he say? Again, this resounding theme and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. God is working to get glory over one of the, if not the most prominent worldly powers of the time. And so that they would know he is indeed Yahweh. They would know he is, Israel's God is God. 
and we can't control him, and we can't defeat him. So he's told to raise his staff and part the waters. So that's what he does. And the angel of God in the cloud goes and stands between the people, goes from in front of them to stand between them and their enemies. The people walk through. And then in the watch of the night, it says that Yahweh saw Pharaoh's horses and chariots pursuing them, and he throws them into a panic. He clogs their wheels, and it seems very clear the Egyptians knew what was happening. It wasn't just a, oh man, our wheels are stuck. It was, let's get out of here because Yahweh is fighting for them. They knew clearly what this was and what was going on here. Then in verse 26, and Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh, host just meaning army, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Moses holds up his staff. The waters part and it brings salvation and deliverance to the people of God. Moses holds up his staff and the waters come crashing back down and it brings death and judgment upon the enemies of God. The same instrument that led to the salvation of God's people is the same instrument that leads to the judgment of his enemies. And is it not the same in Christ? Jesus says of himself in Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, Have you never read this in the Scriptures the stones that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken by its pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Peter, making reference to this as well, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for the one who does not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In the same way, the staff of Moses parted the waters to bring salvation to the people of Israel. The same staff brought the waters crashing down upon the enemies of God and His people to bring their judgment and destruction. Similarly, Christ is the cornerstone through whom salvation comes to the people of God. He is the means by which the waters of God's judgment are parted. To use metaphorical language. And the people of God are saved. And yet He is the same rock 
who is a rock of stumbling and will crush those upon whom he falls. Hear me today, um, dear saint, in Christ, our judgment has been satisfied. The, the, The deluge of God's wrath has been abated, has been satisfied, has been absorbed in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, if you've sat here for any amount of time, more than today, I know you've heard it more than today, because every time you walk in here, you're going to hear it. You've heard it in other places, possibly. Of the reality of the salvation that comes in Christ, hear me today. Look to Him and be saved. He is the means by which God God will save His people. But if He reject Him, Through Him, the judgment of God will come upon you. The same instrument that saved the people of God brought judgment to His people. And again, Egypt knew this was the work of Yahweh. They knew it was Him. And it seems that in this, again... Going back, why did God say He was going to do what He was going to do? Part of it was so that I will get glory over Pharaoh and that Egypt will know that I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh. Seems Yah- it seems Israel- Egypt got that from this. Not in a saving way, it appears. But they knew, okay, this God is not like ours. This God is, is um, t- to quote the beavers of the land of Narnia, he is not safe, but he is king. But it seems not only that Egypt got this memo and understanding, it seems the nations did. If you remember, Pastor Jimmy pointed back a couple of weeks ago to Rahab in Jericho when the spies come in there. Her response is, we, we've heard about your God. We know what's happened. But even if you flip over to chapter 15, verses 14, 15, and 16, Moses and singing, Moses and the people singing the song of praise to the Lord after his salvation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. To your people, O Yahweh, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. God displayed His glory and the reality of who He was, not only to Egypt, but word spread quickly to the nations. And when the people of Israel, it, it appears through what Moses is saying here, as they were traveling along, there was this uneasiness holding of the breath. Because they knew that the God of Israel, Israel was indeed Yahweh. And He was not a God with which to be trifled. So God had brought them to a place, to a battle, that they were told not to fight. And we see later in, in the story of Israel, there were battles they did fight. There were battles that the Lord fought through them, rather. But on this deliverance, on this salvation of Yahweh, they did nothing but watch. 
And God saved them in a way that brought Him glory and showed who He was to the nations and to Israel by showing them that it was ultimately Him who would win their salvation and deliverance. This was not a battle that they had to fight, nor could they. Likewise, with His people in Christ Jesus, He has saved us. And in the journey of sanctification, there are battles that the Lord will fight through us. We are called by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But let's be clear. When it comes to the deliverance of salvation and from the judgment of God, that is not a battle we fight. That is a battle that the, fight, that the Lord has fought and accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. He has done the work. He has fought. He has delivered. He has conquered. He has satisfied His wrath in Christ Jesus. We simply just believe and trust and cling to Him. There's nothing we do to add. There's nothing we do in the fight of, of our salvation. We look to Him and be saved. So we've seen the Lord's sovereign leading in a way that brought His sovereign glory to um, clarity to the people. And then in verse 30, starting in verse 30 and, and through the first half of chapter 15, we see the proper response of the people. Look at verse 30 and 31. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. And what does it say they did? So they feared Yahweh. And they believed in Yahweh and in His servant Moses. And then in verse 15, chapter 15, they worship Him in song. The right response of the people in light of the great working of salvation for God in them is fear, belief, and worship. My propensity and my disposition leads me to have to be careful in what I'm getting ready to say, but I want to say it. Oftentimes when we look at the fear in Scripture and we speak of the fear of the Lord, people, I think, try to take away some of the hit of that. Fear means fear. Yes, it means a reverent awe. Yes, it means an honor. But if we had just seen what Israel just saw, I don't think there's a flippancy toward God in what they're doing. Now we're going to see they forget that very quickly. But the fear here, I think, is very clearly pointing to they saw His power. They saw His holiness and His judgment toward the nations. And the proper response to that is, He is not a God with whom to take lightly. He is not a God to flippantly deal with and relate to as if, if you grew up in my generation and you were unfortunate enough to remember, you remember the t-shirts like, Jesus is my homeboy? No, He's not. We don't deal flippantly with God in this way because we see who He is. We've seen His judgment. We've seen His holiness. And we've seen His righteousness. And yes, we who are in Christ can call Him Father. And yes, we have access to Him. But let's not forget who He is that we get to call Father. Which leads Peter to tell us, conduct yourself with fear and trembling in this time of exile, remembering if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. They, they had a fear toward God. Yes, a reverent awe. 
Yes, a majesty toward him. And a fear toward him. And they believed Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh. They had seen his power. They had seen his salvation. They had seen his faithfulness to his covenant. And they believed in him. And then they worshipped. I don't want to equate worship to solely music. They worshipped him in their fear and belief. But then they worshipped him in song. Go to chapter 15. We see this. It's called the Song of Moses. But if you look at verse 1, it's Moses and the people. They sang this song. Verses um, 1 and 2, we see them singing of the salvation of Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh and His triumph gloriously. His horse and His rider, He is thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. They sang of His great salvation for them. In verses 3 through 12, they sing of His power and His nature. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is His name. He goes on and recounts the how he destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. And then in verse 11, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The response of the people is fear and belief and worship and proclamation. But yet, do we as a church not have much more reason to respond in fear and belief and worship and proclamation? The people of Israel were led by an external cloud. Yes, the presence of God among them, but were led by this external cloud of... Yet we who are His people are indwelt by the very presence of God and the Holy Spirit and led according to His Word. They were, le- they were delivered from an earthly foe. Yet we have been delivered from the principalities. We've been delivered from death. We've been delivered from the judgment of God. Colossians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. As Paul says earlier in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The people of Israel... We understand there's a greater thing going on here, but in this immediate context, the people of Israel saw deliverance from an earthly tyrant who had enslaved them. Yet in Christ, we have deliverance from sin and death and judgment and the wrath to come. How much more should we worship and fear and believe? For indeed, we have a far greater salvation. And here in this immediate context, they had the bones of a patriarch to remind them of God's faithfulness to His covenant. 
And they had a Passover meal that they would celebrate once a year, reminding them of their deliverance. How far better the reminders we have as the people of God. Those who were in Christ Jesus. Who had the reminder of a Savior who came, took on flesh, becoming obedient to the point, even death uh, on a cross. Bearing the wrath of His people. And we have the reminder of an empty tomb to show us God has been faithfulness to His covenant. God has been faithful to save His people. And where they had a meal every year where they would kill a lamb to remember a a lamb whose blood saved them. We have a far greater meal to remember. We have the bread and the wine to point us to the truth of a Savior who has redeemed us, who has saved us, not from an earthly tyrant, but from the wrath that is to come. Who is leading us not to an earthly land of inheritance, but to the land of promise that is far greater. The promise that He has accomplished this for us and that He is the Lord. As the deacon comes and prepares the table, dwell upon these things. Dwell upon the reality of what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. We can see the story of the Exodus We can see the plagues and we can see the parting of the Red Sea. And we can stand back and say, man, how how awesome is God? And we should. But how much greater the working in Christ Jesus toward His people to save? How much greater and more sure the salvation that is ours in Him? How much sweeter our table of remembrance to remember a salvation that comes in the broken body and shed blood that is a salvation that is full and complete and will never fade away. Dwell upon these things as we prepare to come to the table.